see if I can get this to work. I think it does. All right. Uh, my name is Cindy Suffern. Uh, Cynthia to be formal, but call me Cindy. I am um, live in the Chapel Hill, Durham area. So it's nice to be in eastern North Carolina. I haven't been down here for a while. My husband's family is from Jacksonville. So we used to come down here quite a lot, down Highway 70 and then down 111, I think, down to Jacksonville. And uh, since his parents passed away, I haven't been able to come down here quite so often. So it's a delight to be down here with you and enjoy your hospitality. It's been wonderful so far. I'm a, um, a UNC grad from many, many years ago in Chapel Hill. I live, uh, my husband went to NC State, so I represent both. Uh, we're kind of one of those divided families. Uh, so we live in the Durham Chapel Hill area since he worked for IBM. And we've raised three boys, did some homeschooling, <coughs> did some, some teaching. Now I teach English as a second language several days a week to Japanese uh, people in my area. Uh, would you mind grabbing one of those little bottles of water for me, if you don't mind? Um, I teach women's Bible study on Wednesday mornings at my church. We're reading through Psalms together and also I love apologetics. So I <coughs> started a degree program in 2007 um, at the, mainly by uh, distance learning with the seminary in Charlotte and finished in 2012 and kind of keep taking courses. I think once I'm your student, I'm a lifelong student. <laughs> Still learning, so much to learn. Thank you. Um, so today I'm talking about gender, gender wars. You can Maybe that's, that's a harsh term, but I think this is a, something that's happening in our country. We're having these discussions just like we've had discussions of marriage for the last few years. We're having discussions about gender. And uh, I want to focus on some terms. I said um, nature, language, nature, and reality. So let me find my clicker. Here we go. If I do this the right way. Uh, okay. Um, all right, since I'm an ESL teacher, I thought I would give you a little language lesson at the beginning. <coughs> Found this on a website from a university talking about gender. <coughs> um, this is a, a pronouns. You like pronouns, they stand in place of nouns. So you didn't know you were going to have an English lesson this morning. <coughs> Usually when you, if you remember back to English, you learned all about pronouns. He, him, his, her, his, himself, and he and her, and then in the plural, they and them. I hope this is going to work. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. So for this exercise, you are to put the, uh, there, there are five categories of pronouns. There's a few more than you learned, I imagine, in English class, would you think? <coughs> you put, you put an object pronoun, subject pronoun, object, possessive, and reflexive in each one of these. So you can pick he, he laughed at the notion of a gender binary, or per laughed at the notion of a gender binary 
or um, they try to convince she that asexuality does not exist. So you can pick, you can pick depending on which pronouns that you like for yourself. Um, this is something that's being used. Here we go. Here's another kind of an example of traditional pronouns that you learned in school. Uh, but we have new language to learn in um, our gender dialogue. So I'm, I, I want to kind of preface this by saying um, we are called to love each other in the, in the love of Christ. So I'm not here to, to bash anybody, but I'm here to try to help us understand what's going on in the conversation and the context uh, of our culture today. So for, for those who are non-binary, which we'll talk about in a minute, you might use different pronouns for yourself. And in, in colleges and universities and, and high schools, it's my understanding that the teacher is asking students what is your preferred pronoun for yourself so they will know how to dialogue with, uh, with students. <coughs> so um, as we talk about this, some people call it the next frontier in our social justice, the transgender community. Our Vice President Joe Biden has said it's the civil rights issue of our time back in about 2010. Um, there are claims of discrimination, harassment, and a lack of acceptance for people who don't identify necessarily as a traditional gender, male or female. Um, so that brings up a lot of questions. There are consequences now that we're seeing in a real practical way. And these discussions, a lot of them start in the university, as Dr. Howe said. Ideas send to in philosophy in the university, and then they filter down to the culture at large. We also see them in the media and on TV, and what you see on TV kind of filtering down to popular culture. Um, so it brings up questions like, and the training uh, that I read, I saw a link to training uh, for teachers in the Charlotte Mecklenburg school system, Gender 101, and one of the things that they're saying, they're suggesting that the teachers don't call the children girls and boys, they call them scholars and students instead. So that's, it's impacting <coughs> all the way down the line at this point. So, um, let me see. Let me go back. I'm pushing too many buttons here. <laughs> Let's see. What started me thinking about this um, was coming at, was finding this textbook early in this summer called Gendered Lives because it was written by a professor at UNC, my alma mater, and she's a professor in the department from which I graduated many, many years ago. She evidently teaches a, a course called Gender Communication and Culture. And this was the 10th edition. I saw on Amazon it's now in the 12th edition. So this book has been used, the paperback. Uh, it's been used quite a lot in classes, I'm sure, not just for at UNC, but in other um, universities. I started reading it just to say, okay, what is she teaching about in this course? And when I got into to page 18, this is a long quote. This is from her first chapter of the book. And this is kind of, reading this a few months ago really started me kind of down this path and wondering um, what's going on. This is what, uh, bear with me as I read this long quote. She says, thinking and speaking as if there were some stable, distinct essence that is women, 
and some stable distinct essence that is men is referred to as essentializing. The tendency to reduce something or someone to certain characteristics that we assume are essential to its nature and present in every member of a category such as men or women. When we essentialize, we mistakenly presume that all members of a sex are alike. Essentializing obscures the range of characteristics possessed by individual women and men and conceals differences among members of each sex. So this started me wondering because having taken a little philosophy from Dr. Howe, did you hear what he was just saying about uh, essence? <laughs> if we think about essence as being, um, I might just use this, let's see, um, the whatness of a thing. I started thinking, okay, if she's saying essentializing is bad, saying that they're essences of things, uh, what is the essence of something? What does it mean to be a male or a female? Um, philosophy says it's kind of what makes something it is. The essence of an acorn <laughs> is this acornness. The, the essence of human beings is our humanness, our humanity. So is there something that makes us male and female? Um, she's saying that this is something that's not, uh, that we shouldn't do, we shouldn't essentialize. And I can agree in one, in one uh, point perhaps if she's saying that we say every female is just like every other female. We have a variety of, <laughs> of females and the same for, for maleness. We have many ways we express maleness. That doesn't mean that we don't have two basic genders designed by God, male and female. Also, does that match reality? So, I want to just highlight what is truth. Dr. Howell has already talked about this last night. He talked about the correspondence theory of truth, which I think is very valuable just to keep in mind. It's the idea that if something's true, an expression, a statement that we make, it matches or corresponds to an object or idea that we're talking about. If I say I live in Chapel Hill, <laughs> and I actually do, then that I'm using the correspondence uh, view of reality. It's matching reality. That's where my house is. That's where all my belongings, that's where my husband is right now. Um, if I say my shoes are tied and I look down, if I have my sneakers on and my, my my laces are tied, then I'm saying this is matching reality. Um, so if statements don't correspond to objective reality, we can never establish the truth or falsity of something. So you might think, okay, what's the, what's the big deal? But this is, this is where we are that these things are called into question today. So this is other things we know about truth and reality. Truth about reality is knowable. I can know if my car is green or blue by looking, going and looking and seeing, ah, oh, no, it's really white. If I say my car is white, then I'm saying something that matches with reality. Truth is invented. It's not invented, it's discovered. So if I, if I want to have a green Porsche sitting out in the, <laughs> outside, I could say that would, I want that to be my truth for my car, I want to drive home. But actually I could go out and look and I discover what the truth is about my core. I don't have a green Porsche, I have a white Ford that I'm going to drive home. Truth accurately expresses an actual state of affairs. 
And beliefs can't change a fact, no matter how sincerely it's held. No matter how sincerely I want to drive a Porsche home, believing it is not going to make it happen for me. And remember the laws of logic. If you went through this with Dr. Howell last night, this is kind of a review. These are just basic laws in how we think. These seem like really evident, but today, with everything is being called into question, we have to kind of remind ourselves, um, none of us grew up taking logic in school, which is a shame, I think children used to, but now we have to kind of go back and, and relearn things that, that should be obvious. Um, the law of identity, that means something is something else. A cat is a cat. Jesus is the Son of God. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. Um, then there's the law of excluded middle. We say Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is not the Son of God. You can't say both of those are true at the same time, at the same, same way. And that goes into the law of contradiction. If something is A, that means it's not, it's not non-A. I can't say two contradictory statements. It's raining and it's not raining right outside this window at the same time in the same way. That's a contradiction, right? Okay. Now, we're going to get into the gender discussion. And I want to show you um, this, this um, a little hard to read with the lights here. But this is called the spectrum. Thank you. Okay, is that easier? This is from a group called Trevor that um, helps, um, is an organization that helps prevent suicide and um, for uh, people who are having real issues with their sexuality, uh, perhaps gay, lesbian, transgendered, uh, questioning youth. And so it's, it's trying to give them some information. And I found the more that I dug, the more language there is. There's so much language to learn about this thing. So what I want to do is just kind of help us understand some of the terminology so that we can have discussions and think as clearly as possible about this. You see that they have different terms, biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, gender presentation, and sexual orientation. What do all those things mean? What's the difference between them? That's what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes. The biological sex, you can think of yourself as male or female. And they put it in terms of what the doctor assigned you at birth, which is an interesting way to say. You can be male, female, or something called intersex, which I'll talk about in a minute. Then you have a gender identity. It's how you feel about your gender on the inside. It's not your physical anatomy. If you feel like you're a man or a woman, or something in the middle, terms such as genderqueer, trans, transgender, you're not, you're not in one category or the other. Gender expression is how you present yourself to others. Um, do, you, do you wear clothes that we would think are masculine traditionally or female traditionally? Um, and some break that also down to gender presentation, that there's a difference between how the world sees you, if the world sees you as a man or a woman. And then sexual orientation has to do with who you like, who you're attracted to, um, either physically or roman romantically or um, emotionally. <coughs> so, 
<clears throat> I want to read the little blurb at the top to help you see their perspective on um, and helping young people understand all of these terms. They say, our sexuality <clears throat> and gender identity aren't set in stone. <clears throat> in fact, people's identities can be fluid. The spectrum can help you visualize how you feel at any given time. Mark how you identify today on each line, but don't feel limited. It's okay to mark something different tomorrow. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> the idea of being <clears throat> um, one biological sex, one gender identity, <clears throat> For them, is, is you think it's based on feelings, perhaps not necessarily <clears throat> having to do with anatomy or your previous history or anything else. Okay, I want to look at each of these a little bit more in, um, in uh, detail, just so we can continue to understand them. The Oxford Dictionary says there are either two main categories, male and female, into which humans and most other living things are divided on the basis of the reproduction functions. So this is like biology class. In biology we learned that people are, are male or female usually based on their chromosomes, <coughs> having each 23 pairs of chromosomes, <coughs> X and Y making you a male, XX making you a female. And we're a mixture of chromosomes, our anatomy and hormones that as, that, as we develop as a baby in our mother's womb, these hormones come in at the proper time to help form us into a little boy, a little girl. <clears throat> there are occasions where, <clears throat> since we live in a fallen world, um, things happen. <clears throat> things happen because of our, our choices in life. Things happen because of, of we have, <clears throat> God gives us free will, but also things happen that are, we don't live in a perfect world. And sometimes when uh, the hormones don't come in at the right time, uh, when the baby's being formed, we have a, a kind of a confusing situation when the baby is born. <coughs> They're not obviously a little girl or a little boy. I'm sorry. <coughs> so, <coughs> then the <coughs> In that case, the doctor does assign, either at that point or later on, it may be after some chromosomal testing, that, um, that the, little, the child is a girl or a boy. So that situation we call them intersex. That's a very rare. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a list of, in my notes here of situations when that happens. There are different, <coughs> different things that happen, and it does happen. So Professor Wood says that's what the doctor assigned you at birth. But for me, that's kind of a, um, a kind of a flag that she's using language to say that we're all, we're all given an assignment at birth. It's kind of not reality um, as, we, as we know it, not an obvious fact. Okay, let's look at gender, this word. Yeah, Oxford Dictionary says it's a state of being male or female. <clears throat> state of being male or female is called binary terminology. Bi meaning two, um, which for Professor Wood is something that we should try to avoid. 
uh, Mark Yarhouse, who's a Christian psychologist and counsels people um, who are having um, needing to talk to somebody about gender, their gender identity, um, has an interesting book called Understanding Gender Dys Dysphoria. He says gender is a psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. So that gender is a, a is a more inclusive kind of word, a more expansive word than just your biological sex. There's more that goes into this. And Professor Wood says sex is a designation based on biology, whereas gender is socially constructed and expressed. So for her, uh, gender doesn't have to do with our anatomy, it has to do with what our culture says about what it is to be male and female. It's a social construction. And Professor Wood goes on, gender is neither innate nor necessarily stable. It's defined by society and expressed by individuals as they interact with others in media and in their society. Further gender changes over time. So it's the same idea as the kind of the chart at the beginning that there's a, there's a fluidity of how your feelings about yourself can influence the, the gender that you feel like you are at the time. Okay, there's the term gender identity. You're keeping up with each, <laughs> each of these is a different aspect that we're talking about in the whole gender conversation. Gender identity is your personal perception of your sex. Yarhouse says it's how you experience yourself or think of yourself as male or female, including how masculine or feminine you feel as a person. And for Professor Wood, she makes the point that for many people, sex, gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation are congruent. So you would either line up on that little chart, either on the left side of the chart as being man, male, presenting yourself as masculine, or female, um, and presenting yourself as feminine. Um, so for, for most people, all those things line up, but for some people, those four are not consistent. They are kind of a mixture of things. So she says there's gender identity congruence. Here's a couple of examples, a couple of terms that we use for that. Androgyny. Androgyny is not having a clearly defined sense of self as a man or a woman, or just bringing together female and a male and female qualities or characteristics. Um, I was trying to think of the movie, and I, I'm sorry I didn't think of the name of it, that came out a few years ago that was um, on another planet. I maybe I'll try to remember it before the next talk, where all the characters were very androgynous. They're blue. Um, Avatar. Okay, Avatar. If you saw the characters in that, there's nothing specifically that I remember that's male or female about those characters. They're all very kind of androgynous. They could be either one of those things. And you see that in either in media or in culture or just the way people um, dress nowadays. There's also this word called dysphoria. It's a state, usually if you, if you, if the word is termed, uh, definition in general would be an unease or generally uh, a dissatisfaction that something's not quite right. And um, uh, it, it's also in the gender sense means experiences of gender identity in which a person's psychological and emotional sense of themselves as female, for instance, doesn't align with their birth sex as male. So they're feeling like I am maybe in the wrong body. <laughs> 
uh, that I'm, I'm feeling female but I have a male anatomy so there's something dysphoria going on there. Um, there are lots of gender identities. This is just a sample of ones um, that I've got that Facebook uses, the internet, universities. Uh, there are more than this. Uh, just kind of an explosion of ways that you can talk about yourself and your, your gender um, identity nowadays. Um, and I'll talk about a few more of these, especially the cis, in just a minute. Gender expression is another term having to do with how you look or how you present yourself. It's different than your anatomy or how you think about yourself as male or female. It's how you outwardly express yourself. Whether you're <coughs> you feel masculine or feminine, what you, how you speak, what clothes you put on, how you fix your hair, whether it's long or short or whatever style you have. We have lots of different ways to express that, don't we, in the culture. And also there's a lot of crossover. You know, you think his, historically, um, we think of, think of how, uh, this is a, a Renoir picture of women with long dresses, you know, in the 1800s, and men with hats and jackets on, looking very masculine, feminine in their expression. But in Renoir and Rembrandt's time, men wore ruffles. <laughs> They had ruffles on their sleeves. It was a different style of it. It didn't mean that they were feminine. It was just the style for men to wear this uh, 400 years ago. You think of women. A lot of women today uh, have a gender expression that's very masculine in how we dress. It doesn't mean that we're not uh, female, but we just express uh, kind of an androgynous idea in how we, how we dress. And this guy is a little, you could kind of cover up one side or another. Is he male? Is he female? We don't really know. So, sexual orientation. Here's another term that factors into the discussion. This is a person's preferences for romantic or sexual partners or your emotional attachment. Usually heterosexual orientations being attracted to members of the other sex. Uh, males for females, females for males. The gays and lesbians, they're usually attracted to members of their own sex. And then bisexuals or members are attracted to either, either sex. Okay, I'm throwing a lot of terminology at you. Here's a few more words. Transgender, I'm sure you've heard this term. Um, this is how it's defined. It's kind of an umbrella term that can mean a lot of things. An umbrella term for the many ways which people might experience and or present themselves and express their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent <coughs> with their biological sex. So they might feel like they're female but they're presenting themselves as male, um, thinking of their gender identity as, as uh, opposite from what their anatomy is. So they're somewhere in between, they're not one or the other. And then gender fluid is kind of a, a similar idea. Uh, when a person wants to convey that their experience of gender is not fixed, either male or female, and it kind of can fluctuate along a continuum or encompass qualities of both genders. So uh, maybe it's kind of like to my, my original chart and it says, which one do you, are you feeling today? So, more terms. This is one of the, the terms that you saw in the gender identity chart, one of those choices that I showed you, cisgender. 
Cisgender is a word to contrast with transgender to signify that one's psychological and emotional experience of gender identity is congruent with your biological sex. So if you are, um, if your anatomy is female, you think of yourself as being female and you present yourself as, as feminine in some way in your life, then you are cisgender. It's what we used to say was, we used to use the word normal, male or female. <laughs> can't use the word normal anymore so they define a word called cis if you are, think of yourself if all you all line up on one of those sides of the spectrum then you're cisgender cis means on the same side of and um, so <clears throat> I think for Professor Wood this is a new term for anybody who feels that they are you know, male and on all side on all sides of the spectrum are female, and she says that it challenges the taken for granted normalcy of consistency among sex, gender, and gender identity. So they've made a, a new term that we use <laughs> to try to say it's not you can't say that you are normally one way or another anymore. You have to have this other terminology for ourselves. So, she says, this is kind of disrupts the assumption of woman as someone who's female, heterosexual, who identifies as a male and uh, female and feminine. So you can't take it for granted if someone says she's a woman, that she has a, a female anatomy, that she thinks of herself as feminine. Okay, so you cannot take it for granted what man and, and woman mean anymore. Okay, I want to talk about the gender spectrum and give you some examples. This is a, um, there's lots of lots of um, illustrations on the web. If you do Google images and you, you bring up the gender spectrum, you'll see lots of illustrations of people now trying to show us what does it mean to have uh, to be on this kind of continuum. Here's one, it's another one that kind of shows male, female, man, woman with kind of possibilities in the middle. You can be intersex, a third gender, which is kind of transgender, gender fluid, or androgynous. Okay, the gender spectrum is something that has been kind of invented in this language, new language of gender. Because they say that Western culture, which is uh, a real negative <laughs> influence for uh, people in a lot of universities now, that they've come to view gender as binary concept with two rigidly fixed options, male or female, grounded in a person's physical anatomy. And that's something that we have to kind of do away with now. So this is from, this is a long quote. I'm sorry for putting so many words up here. But um, this is, I want you to kind of understand where people are coming from in the gender discussion. This is from genderspectrum.org. They're saying, even if gender is to be restricted to a basic biology, a binary concept still fails to capture the rich variation that exists. That we can no longer think of a male and female. We have to think of, there's a rich variations, there's a multitude of genders out there. Rather than just two distinct boxes, biological gender occurs across a continuum of possibilities. The spectrum of anatomical variations by itself should be enough to disregard the simplistic notions of a binary gender system. 
So here's an example of a gender spectrum. Where in a spectrum might your gender identity be? So you can be Barbie on one end and G.I. Joe on the other end. Where do you fit? Do you fit kind of somewhere more like four or five or eight or nine? That there's a continuum of genders now and you can be any, any of those. <laughs> Here's a, an illustration, another illustration for children, I think specifically trying to show them saying gender identity is about who you are and how you identify regardless of the medical stuff. So regardless of, of any kind of anatomical reality that we see about ourselves, you can be woman, you could be man, or something in the middle, kind of gender queer, androgynous, bi-gendered bi or non-gendered. Or another way to think of it, here's the kind of two ways they're showing you gender identity. You can be, um, I'm a male to female trans person, or on the opposite side, a male to female to male trans person. So you see the idea? There's lots of possibilities, and there's a continuum, um, no longer just two. Here's another illustration. There's lots of, there, there are donuts, there are all kinds of geometrical designs for people trying to explain this fluidity of gender now. Here's another illustration. I'm not trying to figure out all the different possibilities for people in between male and female. Okay, what do we think then about gender? Uh, again, going back to Professor Wood, she says gender is learned. We are encouraged to learn how to embody the gender that society prescribes for us. Well. Um, Maybe so. Do we say to little girls, you know, do we dress little girls and do we give them messages about what it means to be a little girl? Do we tell them you take care of something or be careful or, you know, be sweet, be a good girl? Do we say to little boys, you know, don't be a sissy? Do we say things to that effect to children? Well, maybe we can agree with her a little bit. We talk to our children in gender ways. She says gender grows out of cultural ideas that stipulate social meaning and expectation. So she's saying this is just something we construct, that there's actually, maybe we do talk to children in different ways, depending on if they're a little boy or a little girl, but it's only a social meaning. There's no essence or nature or something that's in male and female, essentially. And also it's changed by personal communication, how not just society in general, but how we talk to each other. So she thinks that there is an illusion. She says the conventional views of both sex and gender are being challenged by people who see themselves as transgendered. They reject the binary categories of masculine and feminine. And she says there's an illusion that there are two and only two sexes two and only two genders and gender prescriptions for society and that they are natural normal ways for people to be. So what can we agree with her about here? We've looked at, um, at biological sex, we've looked at gender identity, we've looked at gender <coughs> expressions. Uh, I think we can agree that there are different theories, there are different ideas about how we develop our gender but usually children know by the time they're three or four what their, what their gender is, if they're a little girl or a little boy. 
but perhaps we can also agree with her that gender expression changes how we express our gender. We looked at the styles and the ruffles from men. If you look at clothing for children over, over the, just the decades in the last hundred years, how it's changed. This is a, <clears throat> do you know who this is? <laughs> it's a little boy. This is uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1884 when he was two years old, our president in the 1940s. Uh, little boys wore dresses till they were five or six years old. Children wore white. Girls and boys wore little white dresses and white diapers. It was much more practical. You could bleach the clothes and get them clean if they wore white, didn't have to worry about them. Pastel colors didn't come into fashion till the late 1800s. And then by the early 200s, about 19, I mean, um, to 1920, 1930, um, actually styles for little girls and boys and the colors they were to wear started coming into fashion a lot because of stores. Stores would say, this is what you need to buy for your little girl or your little boy. And uh, you see how styles change over the years. At first they said, um, blue is for girls and pink is for boys because pink was a stronger color. And then we know that a few uh, decades later that reversed itself. Here's some styles from the 70s for little boys. Here's some styles for women. Women's styles have changed dramatically over the last few decades. And you can see how the colors have changed. This is colors in a children's catalog from the 1970s. And look how things have changed and modern day, everything is very much pink, pink and blue. Some of this started when um, we were doing, um, you know, chil children were uh, found out to be male or female before they were born. You know, you could buy, when, I, when my boys were born, I didn't know except for one of them what they were going to be before they were born. So we bought a lot of yellow, we bought a lot of green. <laughs> And uh, nowadays everything seems to be very strongly pink or blue because you usually do the ultrasound, you know, for a lot of women, what they're going to have. Okay, I want to look at the data and just see if it really correlates. One of my, my major point is today, do we really have this spectrum of a multitude of, of genders? Uh, does it match with, with reality as we see it and as people talk about themselves? Um, if, you, if you look at the data, most people say they're male or female. Uh, this is actually about 99.4% of people in, uh, in the U.S. This is a study made by the Williams Institute of Law. It's a very um, pro-gay um, institute. It does a lot of research on gender and gender issues and gay marriage in the U.S. So they ask how many adults identify as transgender and it's about 0.3 to 0.6 percent of the population in the U.S. Um, so I want to kind of say, okay, if that's true, do we, is this a really a true portrayal of reality for gender in the U.S.? What about the gender identity spectrum if you ask are you female, male, or gender fluid? This is actually what we see. I think if you, if you look back at this, you might think it's a spectrum or maybe it's a bell curve or something like that. Everybody is somewhere on it. But if you, if you ask them, are they male? Do they consider themselves lining up with one side or the other? 
most people are coming down on one side or the other. What about orientations, the sexual orientation, who you're attracted to? Here's a possible list of orientations that we're said to have. A uh, could be asexual, gray sexual, demisexual, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, polysexual. Uh, when they ask people who they are, what their sexual orientation is, actually 96.5% are in the U.S. say they're straight. <clears throat> Bisexual is 1.8%, lesbian or gay 1.7%. So um, I, I contend that we're, we're, <laughs> we're being told that there's a continuum of possibilities, but when they really ask people, this is what uh, the results they get. This doesn't mean that this isn't uh, several, several million people. We have 350 million people in the U.S. So maybe this is uh, 10 million people that we're talking about. So they're not insignificant people. I don't want to discount that. But I, I, I want to stress the point. I don't think reality shows that we have this huge continuum that we think we do. Um, one of the things that, that strikes me most about this is because, as we say, things filter down from the philosophers and the universities down to, to uh, life and impacts people. Um, I, I've discovered the gender unicorn. I don't know how many of you were, have seen this diagram before. Anybody? Have you? Okay. I saw this on, on a website. Um, it's part of the... Um, training that I saw as a, a um, PowerPoint given to teachers in the Charlotte Mecklenburg school system to try to help them be sensitive and deal with transgenders in the school system, transgender children. And this is a way that they're showing children and they have coloring pages for color that they can color themselves to try to um, educate them on the continuum of genders so that they can decide if they, where they fit along the line, either from one side to the other, uh, of male, female, their gender identity, their gender expression, who they're attracted to, and maybe who they're emotionally attracted to. So you see they use a the little figure. He's tried to be, he's very androgynous, kind of non-sexual kind of figure to help children kind of see that people can be any of these things. Uh, except for sex assigned at birth. That's the only thing that really they don't have on a continuum here. This is put out by the transgender student organization that tries to support the transgender students. So, <laughs> kind of thinking about what do we really think about this in reality? Uh, I was um, struck by some results for a paper that came out by two professors, Dr. Lawrence Mayer and Dr. Paul McHugh in August, just uh, last month, in a book called the New, in a magazine called The New Atlantis. And they did um, a comprehensive research of all, uh, lots and lots of studies that have been done about gender and um, sexuality in the country. Uh, they're very well versed in this, and it's called Sexuality and Gender Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Sciences. And they've looked at lots of studies trying to see what can we really say is verified by the science <laughs> and what is not. Um, Dr. Dr. McHugh was 
is called one of the most um, important psychiatrists in the last generation in America. He was, he's been at John Hopkins for many years. He was part of their um, uh, the team that was involved in doing uh, sex reassignment surgery which they stopped when they found that the the results that they were hoping to get uh, did not really match uh, what they hoped to get in reality so they put an end to that and uh, at John Hopkins these are some of their their important findings um, one is the belief that sexual orientation is an innate biologically fixed human property the people are born that way is not supported by scientific orientation by scientific evidence so this is a claim that was made if you go back to the the marriage debates and what is marriage and uh, gay marriage one of their uh, strong arguments um, that they tried to make was that I'm just born this way I can't change my identity as a gay or a lesbian and so I'm, I'm there kind of challenging that idea that um, our sexual orientation, who they were attracted to, was fixed and couldn't change. So they say it's not supported by scientific evidence. Another one is that belief that gender identity is an innate fixed human property is independent of biological sex. So a person might be tra a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body is not supported by scientific evidence. So they're kind of challenging the idea that um, you, you can have this fluidity and that it's independent of anything in your anatomy that they don't think it's, it's really conclusive by scientific evidence. And then they say, this is for children, which kind of goes to my heart when I think about these things. How do we think about children and we're raising them to be little girls, little boys? They say only a minority of children who express gender atypical thoughts or behavior will continue to do so into adolescence or adulthood. There's no evidence at all that such children should be encouraged to become transgender, much less subjected to hormone treatments or surgery. So I don't know if you've read on the news, but I've, I've heard a, a anecdotal accounts of at least a couple uh, ones that have come to my attention of young children, they're saying, that are identifying as the opposite sex at a young age. And they um, have either <laughs> kind of, you know, encouraged that in the child, or sometimes they, they can do things like try to delay puberty in the child, giving them drugs so they, they can have time to figure out what their gender, uh, gender identity truly is. But I, I, make, I would like to think that it's very normal for children. It's very normal for children to play, for little boys to want to play house, to, to make things. And I have, I have six grandkids, and I raised three boys. So there's nothing wrong with having little boys want to cook or do things that might, you know, in other years might been, have been said to be specifically a female activity. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for their examination of the evidence here. Then they also say non-heterosexual and transgender people have higher rates of mental health problems, anxiety, depression, and suicide as well as behavioral and social problems, substance abuse, intimate partner violence, than the entire population. Discrimination alone does not account for the entire disparity. So this really 
pulls at our heart because there, there's so many people that are confused in our world today about who they are. There's such an assault on identity. <laughs> Of what you know, it started at least uh, in the in the 90s. Uh, what does it mean to be male? Or what does it mean to be human? Actually, but you see that it's a really a sad situation because they're really trapped in in um, a situation which can bring other further problems. So I think we need to have a heart of compassion for people who are really struggling in this area. So our conclusions that I saw from when I, I looked at the research is that trans individuals are about six-tenths of a percent of our population. About 1.8 of the population identifies bisexual, 1.7 as gay or lesbian. And I didn't find any real evidence for this spectrum that goes across all of our population as a whole. I contend that we are made binary, that we are cisgender if you want to use their terminology, that we are male and female, and the vast majority of people, whether they're gay or they're straight, identify as male or female. So I, gender expressions can differ by culture and time, but they usually consistently show that people are male or female. For me this comes down to a question of worldviews, a biblical worldview versus a postmodern worldview. Postmodernism has been with us since at least the 1990s. Dr. Howe referred to it last night. How a lot of it started in uh, literature departments when they started looking at, at text and saying you cannot objectively find meaning in a text. Um, this is filtered down to <clears throat> lots of other realms of study in the universities, um, the gender studies, the women's studies, the sociology, psychology, it's kind of infiltrates all of them. And it infiltrates our society. We have a cultural relativism that usually says, society says this is the way it is, or there's a kind of relativism that I say what it is. So there are different flavors of this. Either society says this about gender, or I say this about myself and my gender. There's a real skepticism of universal truths. So there's a real focus. If there's no universal truth that's true for everybody anymore, language is important. And you see how language is at the center of the gender debate, just like it was for marriage. There's a deconstruction, they say, kind of a taking apart of language. We've seen this in the marriage debates, the marriage now about sex and identity and our genders. And so if there's no uh, objective dialogue anymore, you can't lay out your reasons for why something is true or not true, what you're left basically is storytelling <laughs> or narrative. Have you heard this word narrative? They talk about this in po the political debates now with uh, uh, Clinton and uh, Trump. What's their narrative of the day? That means what is the story that they're pushing for the day? Is there something that they want everybody to know? That they're, everybody's saying the same thing on the news. Um, I was struck with this in the 1990s. I, my husband worked for IBM and we, we traveled to France and lived in France for about seven years off and on in the 80s and 90s. And we'd come back once a year um, for vacation to visit family. And every, it, every year it was kind of like a, 
uh, cultural readjustment to come back and to see what had happened uh, since we've been gone and what was popular uh, either on TVs or movies, what the kids were doing now. And I used to listen to NPR radio and in the 90s when we moved back I thought, what's going on? They were telling lots of stories <laughs> and there were stories about homosexuals. Every day there was a different story about um, a homosexual, a gay person and their lives and what was going on. A lot of them um, were saying this is so sad they can't go visit their partner in the hospital. You know, or it would be something, some difficulty that they're struggling with. And I thought, you know, it's, it's easier sometimes if you've been away and you come back and you can kind of see things with new eyes. I'm like, something's going on here, you know. And then we started having Will and Grace on TV kind of showing us, normalizing the idea that, um, you know, you're perfectly normal no matter what your, your gender identity is. So narrative is what it's all about. So there's no meta-narrative. Meta-narrative means there's no big story. We think as Christians there is a big story, right? From creation to Jesus coming again. There's a big story that's true for all people at all times. But postmodernists, our culture that we live in, says there isn't anymore. I make my own reality or have my own socially constructed meanings. And postmodernism says there's a mind-dependent reality. Reality is not just what I see, like we talked about with uh, the laws of logic or what I see with my eyes, but there's a mind-dependent reality that hasn't anything to do with my appearance. So a, a function of your will, uh, your, of your gender is a function of your will. It's kind of created, not discovered. And there's really bottom line there's no essence of human nature or essence man simply is you know a biblical worldview would say we go back to Genesis we say that God created man in his own image he created him male and female and in chapter 1 of Genesis we see it repeated in chapter 5 of Genesis he created them male and female we see it when he's talking when God talks to Noah and tells him to take every living thing of all flesh into the ark keeping them alive with you being male or female we see that with Jesus Jesus kind of affirming this idea of a binary if we want to use their terminology when he talked to the Pharisees they asked him about divorce they came up to him this is in Mark 10 and said whether question him of whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall live his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, and they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God is joined together. Let no man separate. So he is kind of affirming the design uh, of Genesis 1 here. So I, I would argue for a gender realism. That there's a truth that corresponds to reality and that there's a mind-independent feature of reality that shows, has to do with my biological um, anatomy, has to do with my, my gender as male or female that is immutable unless I have surgery or something to change it. 
God created complementary genders, male and female, and it's the property of, of part of our essence of being human. So my question is, if there's a postmodern narrative on one side and reality on the other, can I create my own reality? I think a lot of people in our culture are trying to do that. Remember our law of non-contradiction is unchangeable and that reality be is knowable. So here are my conclusions. Just, I think we need to pray <laughs> about this issue. How do we talk about this lovingly? Remember in 1 Peter 3.15, we're called to give an account or a defense and do it with gentleness and respect. So as we think about this, we're not to bash people, we're to love people, but actually try to see what reality is try to distinguish what's a cultural kind of stereotype and not a biblical norm. Remember we talked about expressions can change, clothing styles change. Is that have, There's nothing in the Bible uh, that's really a biblical norm for that. <clears throat> but um, what is a biblical norm? What does the Bible say to us? So think about the language, think about what's being said and the ways that they're used. And then just to guard against indoctrination and labeling of children. I think talking with children about what it means to be male and female, little boys, not, uh, but allowing them to explore the world regardless of gender. I was a tomboy. I don't know if any other women in here were. I was a tomboy growing up, never wanted to wear dresses. But if somebody had told me I was not a little girl, you know, I don't know what would have gone on in my head at that point. Um, my, one of my sons, my middle son, wanted, loved lions, loved animals. And uh, this was in the 1980s. He was growing up and wanted to be a purple lion for Halloween. I made him a purple lion uh, costume, which he wore. He's loved purple. And he got so much grief for being a purple lion. And other little kids telling him he couldn't wear purple. So let kids explore. <laughs> But I think we also need to teach what is biblical manhood and biblical womanhood look like. We have a culture outside our doors that are looking for identity and there's confusion all around. So that, um, what I have to share this morning, I thank you all for listening. If we have time maybe for questions later this afternoon or in the hallway, I'd be glad to engage. So thank you. God bless you. <coughs>